0: Today's reading is from Genesis 2, 9, 16, and 17. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Um, It is just a wonderfully cozy day, isn't it? Um, And it's great to be here cozied up with all of you, which I know sounds weird to say now that it's coming out of my mouth. Well, um, hey... I'll never forget the day that my daughter broke the law. It was, um, we, were on, we were on vacation, and uh, we came to this fudge shop, and they'd already had a steady diet of gummy bears and chocolate up to this point, so what's, what's the harm in a little fudge at this point? So we're, we're there at the counter, and the clerk is giving us some samples of the fudge behind the counter, and we realized that our daughter, Ava, is not anywhere around us. Now, we're not... That alarmed because there wasn't anybody else in the fudge shop, and so she was in the shop somewhere, so I started going through the aisles, and I finally see her, and she's standing there with her hand over her mouth, her eyes as big as saucers, and chocolate just all, all over her fingers. So I, I walk up to her, and, I, and then I start to see the wrappers of chocolate on the shelf right there, and I say, uh, sweetie, you didn't, you didn't eat that chocolate without asking, did you? And her response wasn't verbal. It just was with hand covered with chocolate, mm-mm, mm-mm, just shaking her head no. And I said, sweetie, you're not telling daddy the truth. I can see the wrappers of the chocolate. I see the chocolate on your fingers. I know you ate chocolate you shouldn't have. So we bring her to the, to the clerk, you know, uh, behind the counter, and she apologizes for stealing chocolate. And, and the lady behind the counter says, it's It's okay. I'm like, lady, no, it's not okay, all right? Why don't you help me out here? I'm trying to teach my kids some morals, you know? And so we leave, and as we're leaving, we try to reiterate to Ava, counter to what this lady said, that this is not okay, that stealing is not good, um, that this is a very bad thing. And Ava asks the question that undoes, it's a one-word question that undoes most parents. She asks, why? And so I say, well... Ava, because the lady, you made the lady very sad. And I'll never, I'll never forget her response. She looked at me and she goes, Daddy, that lady wasn't sad. <laughs> uh, you know, I've had this uh kind of moment. I didn't know how to explain, you know, like commercial exchange and sustainability to a three-year-old. So I basically just said, well... You hurt her. You did hurt her. Can you imagine if somebody took your favorite toy and just broke it? That's basically what you did to this lady. You hurt this lady. Don't ever do it again. wasn't my finest moment as a parent. Um, and clearly, when I looked at Ava, she was not convinced uh, that this was a, a terrible, terrible thing. And, and when I was thinking back on this story, it, it kind of brought together almost it's a living parable of what we see in our culture. Our culture isn't all that convinced, either behind the whys of what many of us and many historically have claimed to be these moral truths and these these right and wrong ways of living that more and more people are saying things are oh, it's okay that were once considered morally reprehensible and what do we believe as a culture what do we hold to what do we stand for what do we fight for sure that there are times that we feel right or that other people's answers and ways in which they live feel wrong, but ultimately for me, what we say is, I decide what's right. I decide what's right. What's right for me in my life, how I want to manage my finances, what I do with my body, how I run my company or raise my kids. Who are you to judge? Like, who gave you the permission to speak into my life? Do you think you're my boss? And sure, you've got your opinions, but they're exactly that. They're yours, and that's all that they are. So when it comes to me in my life, I decide what's right. And sure, there are folks that always take this to like the nth degree, right? You could look at the Hollywood examples. But still, we tell ourselves, even when we see that, we tell ourselves what? I'm different. Sure, I'm not perfect, but I'm mostly good. It's, it's my right to decide what's right for me. And no one can tell me otherwise, not my parents, not my colleagues, not the government, and definitely not some pastor, fill in the blank, right? I decide what's right. But where does this idea, this this way of living, where does it come from? Because when you scour cultures around the globe, that's not a predominant story, this individual, this autonomy on how we lead our lives. And when we step back, you have to ask even a deeper question. It's a question we've been asking the past few weeks. Is that kind of story even worth living? Like, does that lead to what we really want? In life. Now, if you're new with us this morning, um, we're, we're walking through a, in a series and pressing some of these assumptions, these stories that are sold to us in our city, these stories that we buy into and live into without even realizing it. They're the water we swim in, the basic gut-level assumption stories like, "Be true to yourself?" we just assume that's true?" or, or the story that we talked about, um, that it's just a job?" And we're looking at how these stories, they form us as people how these stories form us as individuals, how they form us as communities, and even as a nation. Because listen, nothing determines the story of your life, like the story you tell yourself about what's true, about what's worthwhile, what's meaningful. And and as we navigate these stories, thankfully God hasn't left us, you know, to, to, to guide and walk through these stories alone. He's given us his word. And so we're looking specifically in the book of Genesis, a story that helps us understand who we are and what it means to live as human beings. It's kind of like a touchstone. Are you familiar with this You know this metaphor, a touchstone, where you can rub that story against the book of Genesis and see whether it resonates with its trueness and whether it really is a story worth living for or not. And so today, what we're asking of God's story to make sense of the stories we have around us is making sense of the story. I decide what's right. Is there anything in this story that actually resonates with what's true in the world? Are there places in which that story falls apart? Are there places in which there's a better alternative to that story? And if so, what is it? All right, so that's what we're walking through this morning. Let's check it out. Turn with me in your Bibles or Bible apps to Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to anchor our time. And as we've mentioned each week, we're not going to be able to unpack every aspect of this story this morning. So why don't you feel free to text in any questions? There's going to be a number right here. Um, you can text in your questions throughout the sermon, even after the sermon, and we're going to be addressing some of them in Facebook Live tomorrow around 3.15. You can find those questions, you can watch it live, or the video afterwards at Christ, uh, Facebook.com Christ Community KC. All right? So, as we look at the story, I decide what's right. Is there anything that actually resonates with the way the world works? Um, and the way that reality kind of plays out with this story. Does it line up with the biblical story in any way? Right here in the beginning in Genesis, we see that you and I, human beings, are actually made to be moral creatures. We heard this in the passage read for us. And by that I mean we have to, we have to do the work of deciding what's right and what's wrong. And choosing to do what's right or choosing to do what's wrong. We are designed moral Creatures. Look back at the passage just read, Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Here we find the first command given in the Bible. And we understand right there, if God is commanding human beings... We understand that human beings were created then with moral choices and consequences in mind. This is a part of the makeup as as human beings. We're obligated to understand and actually respond and so do what's right. That's the way the world's been made, the very framework of it. And what's so fascinating, I think, about our culture when you just kind of look around is that there really appears to be a desire to want to decide what's right. We want to decide what's right. We don't, we don't want to decide what's, what's wrong. We live in a deeply, I think, moral culture where we kind of expect people to do what's right. Not expect people to be perfect, right? That's something that people, we, we deeply push against. But we do expect people to do what's right. And we have a lot of cultural pressures to do what's right. I have a lot of conversations with people who, as soon as they find out, you know, that I'm a pastor, and I try not to wear it on my sleeve, but it just it shows up on my face, I guess. You're a pastor, aren't you? Okay, hey, nice to meet you. Um, and then instantly people followed up with, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I've been trying to do, and then they start to give me the litany as to why they think they're good people. And I think there are a lot of really great folks that I've met because they tell me they are. And, and, <clears throat> and it's not that they're even connected to an organized religion. Everyone has a moral code by which they live by. I've met plenty of folks who don't even subscribe to the Christian story, and they're very moral. Honestly, I've met a lot of people who don't subscribe to the Christian story who are probably more courageously moral than I am at times in my life. We want to decide what's right. Like, we live in a culture that really has a lot of pressure there to decide what's right. And it even shows up in our society and the pressure that we put on corporations um, to do certain practices and to carry forth certain standards, For example, when Google was founded, I don't know if you knew this, one of their core values was don't be evil. (laughs) Sounds like a pretty baseline, you know, goal. And since then, I think they've changed it to um, do the right thing, which is maybe rather than just the negative, don't be evil, why don't you be proactive to do the right thing? Another example is the Mars Corporation, those who brought us the delicious uh, experience of Snickers, right, and others. Um, They seek to not only have profit as their bottom line, but seek to have an economics of mutuality where there's a threefold bottom line where they're assessing not only their profit, but how it engages people and even the planet. We have certain structures in our society that have pressures to say, we want you to choose and do what's right and to care for one another. And as Westerners, this is, this is kind of a unique nuance we have, we're deeply passionate around issues of injustice and equality with this heightened sensitivity of the vulnerability, of, of being aware of the vulnerable in our midst. Um, you don't find that on every news channel in every other country. This is something that you find even more heightened in Western culture. And that's a really good thing. It, it doesn't, but, but it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not like it's just like, well, that's the way things have always been and there's no reason for it. We were made have to make right decisions, and we want to make right decisions. That's part of what it means to be human, according to the biblical story here. And yet, so this is where we kind of see, well, maybe are there places in which this this story starts to break down? Amidst the recognition that, that we have to make right decisions and we want to make right decisions, we live in a world that increasingly can't decide what is the right decision, Another way to put this is that we have a desire to pursue what's absolutely moral while simultaneously saying there are no moral absolutes. And the result of that is a society and as, as us as individuals is frustration. It's just this utter frustration. We have to decide what's right. We want to decide what's right. But we really just, we really struggle to decide what's right without any category of moral absolutes. And here's how this starts to play out. This is why this is such a huge struggle for starters, we all have this deep-seated moral belief that, that we can't escape. But in our culture, we wrestle with one of the most basic of ethical questions. We wrestle with where this comes from. Where, where does this desire and this, this ability to discern between right and wrong come from? I recently read an article um, from Science 2.0. I don't know if you've ever heard of this website. It's got some really thoughtful articles on it. And they highlight how we're, high, we're hardwired to intuit. Right and wrong. And it's affirmed in the strangest of places, it's affirmed in the stories that we tell. Nearly all fictional worlds, whether they're explicitly religious or explicitly non-religious, or don't make any statement about their beliefs, the worlds in which we create within our literature, they, they have a godlike figure or force that exists in the sense that moral decisions were always they're always intricately linked or lead to certain consequences. So listen to what what they write in this article. In children's stories, this can be very simple. The good guys win, the bad guys lose. It's as simple as that. In narratives for older readers, the ending is more complex, with some loose ends left dangling and others ambiguous, yet the ultimate appropriateness of the ending is rarely in doubt. If a tale ended with Harry Potter being tortured to death and the Dursley family dancing on his grave, (laughs) right, the audience would be horrified. Right And of course, but also puzzled, that's not what happens in stories. That's just not what happens in stories. We, we have this, this gut level assumption that there's some sort of force that good actions somehow have a better ending and bad actions should lead to certain consequences. Every sin- single one of us somehow has this sense that right and wrong matter. But in our culture, we don't have the categories to explain why or where this even comes from. And the best answer we're left with is to try and explain on an evolutionary, naturalistic basis how this sense of right and wrong has helped us survive, okay? And there's, there's, some, there's some truth to that, okay? But, but and, and this is a really popular viewpoint. I, I finished a book not too long ago by Jonathan Haidt. It's a bestseller called The Righteous Mind. He's an atheistic uh, social psychologist. And he basically says that all morality... What we think is right and good is, is very complex post-hoc justification of what we want. <laughs> you just want that so that you do this complex justification in your mind as to saying, well, this is moral because this is ultimately what I want. And this is what's at the basis of this naturalistic evolutionary theory. But if that's all we have, this is really important, if that is all we have, if every conversation about right and wrong is based solely on my personal survival or my personal pleasure, rather than on pursuing what is ultimately true and right in the world, regardless of whether it benefits me or not, then Nietzsche, the the 19th century atheistic philosopher is right and everything divulges into a power grab, or what he says is the will to power which is at the base of the survival of the fittest. Every conversation that is veiled with this false language of pursuing the truth is really just a power grab. And skepticism and distrust and manipulation are all tools in which you gain and grow in the evolutionary cycle. He's very consistent and coherent with his basic framework of belief. And I think this should terrify us. I think we see this happening more and more in our society, a lack of trust, because listen, when push comes to shove, you, you can define anything, like anything is right or wrong for any situation at any point in history. Right and wrong eventually divulge into nothing more than your personal preference. That's where you're left. Richard Warty, he's one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century, He argued that this is an essential understanding to a naturalistic world without God. Essential, not like optional, essential. If you don't believe in God and that this world has come about by evolutionary chance or determinism outside of an act of God, then this is essential to understand the world. For example, one of his students asked him in class, this is so important, if right and wrong are only preferences, what if I preferred to kill you? (laughs) And you know what his response was? Well, stinks for me. Like, that was his response. One of the greatest philosophical minds of the 20th century. What if my preference is to kill you? Well, stinks for me. He's being very coherent in his worldview. This is what we have to offer. For Rorty, the basis of human rights, it can't be moral absolutes. It has to be sentimentality. And by that, he means we should have a sense of empathy for our fellow homo sapiens that encourages us to avoid harming each other. But there's a rather, here's, here's, the, here's the huge hole in this, this foundation for ethics, okay? What if someone says, I don't want to be empathetic? I, I don't want to do that. That's not my preference. What you're left with is no moral ground to actually challenge that person. Racism and terrorism and absolute atrocities in our world are left without any foundation to confront, Evil cannot be named as evil, but just as another person's preference. That's what you're left with. To be consistent with your worldview. You may argue for something else, but it has no foundation in an atheistic framework. It actually has much more framework and foundation out of the Christian story. What becomes a morality? But the preferences of the people with the power to enforce their preferences. What is morality? It's the preferences of the people who have the power to enforce their morality. And conversations, and this, we see this happening more and more too, are, they're basically won or lost by who can shout the loudest. It's all about might makes right. Majority oppressing minority. And nothing can stand in the way if this is the narrative you hold to. If this is the story that ultimately defines you. But when we look at the biblical story, What we're seeing and what we experience shouldn't surprise us because when Adam and Eve heard God's command and they chose to eat the fruit instead, they invited in this whole new story of moral relativism, the story that says, I decide what's right. And this was never God's intention for us as human beings. This level of frustration and struggle and disintegration as a society. He didn't design us to be ignorant as to the origin of our desire for what's right. He didn't design us to be cynical of morality. He didn't design us to be powerless to name evil as evil. No. So what did he design us for? Look with me again at Genesis chapter 2 verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, this is a land of untold beauty. I mean, so many trees, every tree that was pleasant to the eye and had such tasteful fruit. And then you go and you read verses 10 through 14 and you see this beautiful description of the garden. God has designed such a wonderfully good world. But amidst this beauty, jump down to verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, if this is your first time ever hearing this story or reading this story, or it's even the 10th time you've heard it, it just sounds bizarre. Like what is going on? Why would this tree be there? What is happening? I mean, what is this knowledge of good and evil? Here's the basis here, the knowledge of good and evil. It has to do with knowing what will lead to human flourishing and what will lead to human destruction. What is right and what is wrong. But why? But it still leaves the question, why doesn't God tell why does God tell Adam and Eve not to eat of this tree? To try and have that kind of knowledge. And our temptation is to turn to once again the narratives that we hold in our culture and say, "See, This is just another power play. It's just more on a cosmic scale. God is keeping something good for us from us. He's the one who's powerful and he's enforcing his preferences upon us. But of course, that assumes that we know it's right. Um, That if we just get enough education, if we just have enough experiences, then we will have the power, the prowess to choose what's right. And time and again, we've misread this story, I think. You see, God isn't holding something back that will make us more powerful. God isn't arbitrarily making a decision because he's the most powerful. Instead, God is protecting human beings from a perspective of the world that will leave us frustrated. He's protecting human beings. You see, we're incapable. This is really important. We are incapable of having full knowledge of good and evil. Absolutely incapable of it. This is one aspect of of what theologians mean when they call us finite creatures. Being finite means you have limits. We obviously know we have physical limits, you know. You can't, you know, run forever before you eventually die and pass out. But we also have cognitive limits. And I I know this sounds ironic, but I want you to think about it, okay, for a second. If you have cognitive limits... We will never have enough education, never enough knowledge on our own to be able to always make wise choices that lead to everyone's flourishing all the time. We will never have enough information, never enough education or experiences that we will be able to always make wise choices that lead to everyone's flourishing all the time. You see, we as human beings cannot know everything. Now, I know that's not like a groundbreaking insight, but it has huge implications because if we can't know everything, then no one can be definitively certain of any moral claim or action if that moral claim comes from nowhere else than within ourselves. And if there is no God, moral relativism is what you're left with because within us, we can't know everything. And if we can't know everything, then we can't say definitively what is moral and what isn't. But what if morality and its foundation comes from one who can know everything and does know everything and has the capacity to make wise decisions every time and care for everyone to their best good every time. You see, this has huge implications for justice, our finiteness, for what's right in the world, for a moral society. Because what that means is that what we need most in a culture isn't more education. And listen, (laughs) I'm not saying we don't fight for education, good education, right? We should. It's just not what we need most. What the world needs most isn't Western intellectuals going on an educational crusade of the developing world, which we so often hear from the elites in our culture. What we need most isn't actually merely more laws that can keep us from harming the vulnerable. And I'm not saying we don't fight for good laws, laws that protect the ones who don't have the power to speak for themselves, that's really important. But what we need more than anything else To to decide what is right is that we need someone else who's absolutely right. We need someone else who's absolutely right. And that someone isn't me. That someone isn't you. It has to be the one who throughout Genesis 1 has unspeakable power to imagine innumerable possible worlds. Do you think about that? He, He has the capacity to imagine innumerable possible worlds and chose to create the best of all possible worlds, a world he says over and over, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he puts us in that world. And in that good world with him, not isolated from him, and he says, trust me. I'll show you how good my perfect will and my good world actually is if you'll just trust me. Because you don't have the capacity to figure it all out on your own. Do you want to know what it means to live? Trust me, absolutely. Do you want to know what it means to love? Trust me, absolutely. Do you want to know what it means to be full, to be whole? Trust me, absolutely. And deep down, listen, we know... We know this is what makes sense of our story. We know there's a moral arc to the universe, and it only makes sense with a cosmic lawgiver, this first mover who began the universe. But, and being made in his image, we intuit that there are these non-negotiables about right and wrong. We slam the table and we admit and we actually emphasize this, but we have no backing unless we come to the recognition in which we need someone else who's absolutely right. And we feel it as much as we may fight against it. And you see what sets the Christian story apart from every other religion, every other system of ethics, is that when we broke that moral law, the great lawgiver, God himself, he became human in Jesus Christ. In the New Testament gospel account of John, John writes the word, the logos, the the logic and wisdom underlying everything became human. And he played by his own rules. He didn't just tell us how to live, but He showed us how to live. And He willingly went to the cross to suffer and die for our moral bankruptcy. And now He offers forgiveness and new life, empowered by His Spirit to all who come to Him and trust Him. And so we're left here with a question to kind of pause in the recognition of a different story. We're left asking, who are you trusting to tell you what's right? What's right? Who are you trusting? We're, we're all trusting someone. Who are you trusting to tell you what's right? Who are you trusting with your body, with your relationships, with your work, with your future, your finances, your kids, and community? I mean, aren't you weary of carrying that burden all alone? If you're trying to, we know we have to decide what's right, and we—I I think everybody in this room really wants to decide what's right. We feel that pressure, but we can't do it all by ourselves. And that's because we were never designed to. What we need is somebody else who's absolutely right. And God in Christ is absolutely ready to receive you. He's spoken and the world was. He's spoken and His word was. He's come in the flesh and he's willing to show you life and life abundant if you'll trust him. So will you trust him today? You decide. Let's pray. God, I know this story, um, I decide what's right. It's, it's a bit uh, sneaky in the fact that many of us would probably in this room say, we don't decide what's right and we, lean, we seek to lean into your word and what you've spoken and and your authority. And yet there are spots in each of our lives, God, where we're holding on to something, where your word calls us to this, and we say, well, that's no longer relevant for me today. Your word calls us to this, and we hold it at arm's length, and then we wonder why we're so frustrated. God, I pray that we would hear your loving call to trust you, and we would do so willingly, and so find the joy that you offer in obedience and surrender to Jesus Christ. God, help us. In our brokenness and our stubbornness, will you break us so that we, in our surrender, might find new life once again. God, we need you. We trust you. Help us to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen.